Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Attention at the Capitol will soon shift to when lawmakers may return for a special session to take care of unfinished business. Meanwhile, you may still be digesting all the things that happened this legislative session. Today, we want to focus on some of the environmental measures that made it through. You can join our conversation, too. Here's the number, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to our studio Emily Lewis, Director of the Climate and Energy Analysis Center at the Acadia Center based here in Hartford. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. So one of the, the big winners of this legislative session was offshore wind power. Uh, remind listeners uh, what has been uh, debated over the last year in terms of how Connecticut compares with some of our New England neighbors when we look at offshore wind commitments. Sure. So Connecticut uh, has waded into the offshore wind uh, territory a little bit. Uh, in the last year, they committed to 300 megawatts, which was great. Uh, but compared to other states, Massachusetts uh, at the time had 1,600 megawatts they had committed to. New York had committed to 9,000 megawatts. Uh, so in comparison to scale, uh, Connecticut was a little bit farther behind. So this legislative session, a bill just passed uh, committing Connecticut to 2,000 megawatts of offshore wind. So that really brings it up to pace with its neighbors. Uh, And it's a critical time to do so because now the industry is developing. We want to be in the race to make sure we get the economic development and the the jobs that come along with all that offshore wind development. Can you describe when we say 2,000 megawatts of power, what does that translate to? It's big. So, uh, it's about 950,000 homes uh, in the state of Connecticut. Uh, so that's that's a lot of, of homes to power. But just in terms of total electricity that the state consumes, it's about 30%. And in terms, you know, Connecticut's a small state. So 2,000 megawatts is smaller than some of its neighbors in terms of absolute megawatts. But in terms of electricity consumed, it's actually the biggest commitment out of any state. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're really leading here on the on the offshore wind front now in Connecticut mm. because of this bill. So when listeners hear about this commitment, it doesn't mean that we're going to have wind power next year. Uh, so talk us through what needs to happen before we actually see wind turbines operating uh, many miles off our coastline. Sure. It's, it's a many-step process. Um, so the bill passed, and so it required that within two weeks of the governor's signature, which happened last Friday, um, that a new request for proposals would be issued. So developers of offshore wind who have uh, rights to the leases out in the federal waters you mentioned will submit bids, and then the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection will review those bids. And there's part of there's an environmental stakeholder group that also is involved in that as well as part of the bill. Um, so then the project is selected. They have to get federal permits, and then they have to build them. And there are limitations around building times because of the wildlife protections in place. So um, because of the whales, you can only build in certain seasons. So it's a multi-year process to even get them built. So we're looking probably at three to five years, probably closer to the five-year timeline before they're actually up and operational once the bid is selected. Mm. Uh, When we think about uh, wind power, uh, remind us uh, in our nation where we see some of these wind farms in New England. actually pretty small right now. It's, it's very small. The only U.S. offshore wind turbine uh, installation is off the coast of Rhode Island. It's the Block Island Wind Farm, and it's only five turbines. It's about 30 megawatts. So uh, it's, a, it, it's almost like a pilot project. It was really just like, we can do this in the U.S. Look at these turbines. They're doing great. 
Uh, and so I think once that project was built, all the states started to realize how awesome offshore wind was and made these commitments. Uh, and so now Connecticut's getting in the game, too. Uh, this is where we live in studio with me, Emily Lewis, uh, director of the Climate and Energy Analysis Center at the Acadia Center based in Hartford. We're taking a look at some of the environmental measures that made it through this legislative session. You can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned the timing is important when we look at that the federal government, and even t- in terms of tax credits, uh, what's at stake if uh, we, you know, we didn't have this commitment to get developers interested in uh, production? Right. That was one of the reasons the bill included that two-week um, request for proposal kickoff when the bill was signed is because there are federal tax credits expiring at the end of this year. And if the, the project is not uh, selected uh, by the end of the year and sort of in on the books, they're not eligible for those tax credits. So it's really important that we get the first one out the door now. Um, and then it, it's not going to be not likely going to be all 2,000 megawatts this year selected. So there will be future projects um, that will not be eligible for those tax credits unless there's a federal action to extend them. Mm. And how does this all play into uh, Millstone and uh, its operations? That was another part of the thinking on the 2030 date. So it's 2,000 megawatts by 2030 in the bill. Uh, Millstone has two units, the first of which goes offline in 2035 and the second goes offline in 2045. I should say their licenses expire at those dates. They, they could possibly extend their licenses for another 20 years, but it's likely they'll close at those dates just because of uh, it's an unprecedented process to extend beyond their original licenses there. Um, so if offshore wind, if we have 2,000 megawatts solicited by 2030, it will be hopefully up and running more or less by 2035 when that first unit goes offline. So where Millstone, while it has waste issues, uh, doesn't produce carbon dioxide when it generates power. So if we're If we were to lose that plant and have it replaced with natural gas, we would gain carbon dioxide emissions in Connecticut, which is the wrong direction right now. So by getting this offshore wind online um, on approximately the same timeline, we'd really be replacing zero carbon generation with other zero carbon generation. And that's important with Reggie. Can you remind us what that is? Right. Reggie is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, So it is a program to reduce carbon generation, uh, carbon emissions in the generation sector. And so it sets a cap. Uh, at the maximum level of emissions that you can have in the region, and it reduces that cap every year. And so power generators have to buy credits, uh, and there are credits sold up to that cap. So in order to maintain compliance with Reggie, generators have to buy those credits. And if Millstone were to go offline, suddenly Connecticut would have to buy a lot more credits, and they might be unavailable or more expensive, um, but they would have to do it to remain within the Reggie cap. This is all important, but also when we, when lawmakers look at the economic impact of offshore wind, uh, including uh, helping to make uh, the New London Pier uh, a place where these wind turbines could be transported? Yeah. Uh, so the governor, in collaboration with uh, some industry partners, including the offshore wind developers, recently announced a public-private partnership uh, on the order of $93 million to redevelop the New London State Pier for offshore wind activities. And I think they're still in the planning phases about what that might look like, or at least it's not super public what that might look like. But it's designed to be a staging area for offshore wind development, not only for Connecticut and the offshore wind we've just uh, committed to, but the whole region because it's they're all being built in these federal lease areas that are you know off the off the coast quite a ways. So one of the attractive pieces of the New London port uh, area was that there's no overhead restrictions. So I think part of the plan is to build taller things and actually float them out there. So maybe that's the basis. Um, I think part of the development as well could look at um, filling in area between the two piers. I've seen some drawings that show that or different dredging of the river to make it uh, more accessible for the offshore wind development. 
And when we think about jobs, you know, how will that impact uh, local residents? Uh, is it a lot of jobs? I, it could be a lot of jobs. Uh, Acadia Center uh, looked at this a little bit last year when we put out our memo to the next Connecticut governor. And we found that 2,000 megawatts of offshore wind uh, would de- generate something like 2,000 jobs for the state of Connecticut. Um, but as you know, the supply chain industry comes to the region and all these states have their other commitments, you know, there's, there, we're small states. There's not a lot of, um, you know, there's not a hard border between them. So it will sort of rise all tides uh, and could create you know, tens of thousands of jobs, I think, between the different states. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Arturo's calling from Hamden. Arturo, go ahead. Hi. Uh, good morning. Am I, am I on air now? Yes, go ahead. Oh, oh uh, yes. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, just quickly, I, I want, I'm interested in finding out what these offshore uh, uh, windmills, wind, wind power, well, it, it's great news and, and it's good to go green. Uh, my my concern is uh, what's the impact on local marine life? I remember uh, reading that uh, the the breeding dynamics of uh, whales off the coast of Massachusetts was the noise of uh, you know the underwater was could be stressful for them and um, so so you know I and that's so so this is just something I would like uh, to hear some feedback or information in regards to what we're doing to prevent that or minimize it. Well, thank you, Arturo, for your question. Uh, something that, uh, uh, you know, there are many uh, local residents who think about marine life and the impact. Uh, what do we know? You mentioned whales earlier. Right. Uh, so when they did the Block Island Wind Farm, they had periods of time that they were not allowed to do construction because of the whales, and I believe their migration or breeding habitats uh, or breeding patterns. Um, I also know they had to restrict activities if they saw a whale and, and there was some radius on where they could pass through uh, and they had to stop activities. There's also been a recent uh, partnership between um, the National Wildlife Federation and Vineyard Wind in construction of the Massachusetts project, uh, just again, ensuring those whale protections. Uh, And then a final piece that Connecticut committed to in the bill was there's a, the developers have to talk about how they're going to use best practices to mitigate environmental damages during construction. So it's part of, it's like built into the development process here in Connecticut and, and the other states have different protections as well. Um, but it it is a concern, and we want to be balancing all these activities. But I think as long as we're doing it smartly and building it in from the get-go so developers know they can plan for it and budget for it, uh, that's that's important. Again, we're looking at environmental uh, legislation to come out of uh, the Connecticut General Assembly uh, over the last uh, session. You can join our conversation if you have a question, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My in-studio guest, Emily Lewis, Director of the Climate and Energy Analysis Center at the Acadia Center uh, in Hartford. So from offshore to solar metering, uh, tell us more about what was included in this bill, the Green New Economy Bill. Right. So... The, the short answer is the, the Green New Economy Bill reset net metering in the state of Connecticut to allow it to go forward for the next couple of years, and it reversed some of the bad provisions that were enacted last year through legislation. And so those were, uh, last year the bill, it was called SB9, it undid net metering in, in a couple of ways. The f- first way is it changed, um, it put in place two provisions. One was called buy all credit all, which means that instead of being able to consume the solar from your roof, and then at the end of the month, everything you sell is credited against what you consumed. So that's netting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of that, you would have to sell everything you generate to the grid and buy everything back at the retail rate. And you would be credited at probably less than the retail rate through this process set in place by that bill. So it really changed the economics that customers would be eligible for. The other option put in place by the bill was 
uh, netting that was less than one month. So instead of being netted at the period of your bill, it would be netted at periods one day or less. And again, just by shortening that netting period, you're changing the economics for customers because you're netting over fewer kilowatt hours. And again, you'd be getting less for those kilowatt hours that you are selling. So th those changes really change the economics for customers. Um, and because of that bill, there were some proceedings that happened through the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority. Uh, and it turned out that these were not going to be a good deal for customers. So we came back here in the 2019 legislation, legislative session and were able to get this legislation through that put back those good provisions. So we now have net metering through the end of 2021, and we put in place a process to determine how net metering could evolve over time to address some of the concerns that the original bill was supposed to address. So we're looking at the value of solar. And so when you put solar on your roof, there's the carbon dioxide savings value. There's the value in terms of not having to build another big power plant. But there's also, uh, you know, costs associated that you have to have holes and wires to support that solar technology that you're not necessarily paying for if you're crediting. So looking at the total value, uh, both in terms of cost and benefits, from that information, you can then go forward to develop a better solar policy for the state. So that process was put in place by the new bill that was just passed this session. Uh, Emily, uh, what are um, some ways that consumers can figure out if this is a good idea for them? Because it's a lot of, as you mentioned, like looking at uh, a savings and also cost. Um, so where can they go to get more information if solar is right for them? Yeah, so Connecticut Green Bank has partnered uh, with a website called Energy Sage, and it's um, it's sort of a clearinghouse for solar information. So I, I, I am a relatively new so solar, excuse me, relatively new homeowner, so we're looking at putting solar on our roof. So this is where I went to, you know, following through the link on the Green Bank. Uh, and what you can do is you put in information like how much electricity you use per month, per month, what your electricity bill is per month, uh, and uh, how much, you know, they can determine how much solar you need based on that information. And so once you know how much solar you need, different developers will give you quotes based on that information. And so I think I got back five or six quotes or something like that from all different developers who would use certain types of panels for certain amounts of energy. And they also provide different financing terms. So, you know, a seven-year loan or a five-year loan, how much money down, all of those types of financing things that finance people get excited about. <laughs> Uh, another uh, choice that consumers uh, are making are um, making sure that they, if they have to drive, it's going to be an electric vehicle. Um, There's something uh, in the legislative session that could help uh, inc uh, increase the number of people both using uh, electric vehicles for personal use, but also for the state fleet as well? That's right. So the, the bill included two provisions. One was uh, creating a steady funding stream for the electric vehicle rebate program. So right now, Connecticut does have a rebate program for regular consumers to purchase an electric vehicle. Uh, and the amount varies based on like the size of the battery itself. But this created uh, a $3 million funding stream for funding that rebate program going forward. So that's probably two-ish years of funding. So that's really great. Previously, the state, uh, to their credit, has managed to fund the program steadily, but it's been with different settlement dollars from utility uh, settlements. Uh, so it's been hard to maintain that going forward. Um, and then the other piece that passed in the legislation was a requirement that the state fleet purchase 50% uh, of all light-duty vehicles uh, be electric by 2030, and then 30% of all buses, bus purchases would be electric by 2030. And so that's, you know, the state making a commitment to moving towards electric vehicles in the future. Um, there's some argument that those uh, targets could be stronger. Maybe it should be that 30% of the total bus fleet should be electric rather than just 30% of purchases be electric, for example, by 2030. Um, but it's great that the state's moving in the right direction and we're happy to see these kind of commitments on the books. Mm. So overall, a, a good session uh, for environmental concerns, but anything that the lawmakers missed their mark on? 
Sure. There's, so there's there's one piece. Um, so again, in uh, Acadia Center's uh, memo to the next governor we put out last fall, uh, we, we talked about offshore wind, distributed solar, and energy efficiency as sort of the three main components of developing a green energy economy and creating jobs through clean energy. And so energy efficiency um, was not rated this year, so that is definitely a good thing. However, there was a lot of hope in the advocacy community that the fund raid for 2019 would actually be restored in this legislative session, and it was not. So uh, we're still working at a deficit through the 2019 year, um, but you know, come 2020, we should be back to, to regular funding because that was not rated for the next two years. So we're, we're, we're happy, we're moderately disappointed about that, but still happy uh, that we have energy efficiency going forward. Well, Emily Lewis, thank you again uh, for breaking that down for us here on Where We Live. Emily is director of the Climate and Energy Analysis Center at the Acadia Center in Hartford. Thanks, Emily. Thanks very much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we're going to return to offshore wind power and learn about how this technology relies on the mining of certain metals known as rare earth elements. Now, what are the consequences of clean energy on certain communities? We're going to find out. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266, or as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard how Connecticut is joining other New England states in expanding its commitment to offshore wind power. Now, wind power is the largest source of renewable energy in the U.S., but how does the technology work? And what are the ramifications for certain communities which mine the materials for offshore wind? Uh, joining us to tell us more from Mix One Studios in Boston is Dr. Julie Klinger, Assistant Professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies, co-director of the BU's Land Use and Livelihoods Initiative, and author of Rare Earth Frontiers, From Subterranean Soils to Lunar Landscapes. That sounds pretty interesting. Julie, welcome to our show today. Thanks so much. So I mentioned rare earth uh, elements or metals. So tell us more about which ones we're talking about and why they're important for offshore wind power. Okay. All right. So the term rare earths refers to 17 chemically similar elements that are found uh, between numbers 57 and 71 on the periodic table. And we're not talking about all of those mm -hmm. for rare earth elements. We're only talking about a couple um, that are used in wind turbines. And the principal ones that we're talking about are called neodymium and dysprosium. And the important thing to clear up right away is that even though these things are called rare earth elements, they aren't actually rare. Uh, the ones that we use most common, in most commonly in addition to neodymium and dysprosium, like lanthanum and cerium, which we use for a variety of technological applications, are actually about as common as copper or lead. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to building a wind turbine, uh, there are some wind turbines out there. You know, if you have a two megawatt or a three megawatt wind turbine, you might need anywhere between uh, 500 to um, 2,000 pounds of rare earth elements. And what are they used for? They are actually used for magnets in the wind turbines, mm -hmm. right? So the thing that's actually generating the energy as the wind turbine spins around requires these elements. Uh, when we think about uh, renewable uh, power sources and uh, these magnets uh, that are used to well, you know, help uh, operate uh, turbines, but also in the fossil fuel industry, they're using rare earth elements as well? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the important thing to be clear about, right? If we talk about the environmental impacts of where we get these rare earth elements, we have to be absolutely clear on the fact that uh, the problem of you know, uh, social and environmental impacts of mining rare earth elements did not begin with renewable energy tech. Right. Dif- certain rare earth elements are used in petroleum refining. Others are used to produce the super strong alloys that are used uh, to build pipelines so they're safe and don't burst. Basically, if you look around you, just about every piece of hardware in modern life uh, uses or relies on rare earth elements in some way. When we talk about uh, rare earth uh, metals, uh, where primarily are they being mined, Julie? Well, the largest rare earth mine in the world is located in northern China in Inner Mongolia. And this single mine uh, is the source of about 40 to 50 percent of all rare earth elements consumed globally. Uh, Most refined rare earth oxides, right? So this is after you, uh, this is several steps down the chain Mm -hmm. after you dig the stuff out of the ground and you process it and you throw away the stuff you don't want and you just get the stuff that you want. Most of that stuff comes from China because China, not because China has the largest deposits of rare earth elements, but because China has built up over the past several decades uh, the greatest industrial capacity for actually processing these things and converting them into things we use, like Mm -hmm. magnets, for example. So production is cheaper and easier in China? Uh, certainly cheaper. I mean, mm-hmm. it's. I think it, production is complicated wherever you do it. <laughs> so you've actually, uh, you know, been to China and spent much time there, looking at um, uh, the communities that um, are where this, these elements are being mined. Tell us about what what you found when you went there. Mm, okay. So between two thousand. 10 and 2013, um, I was a regular visitor to Bauto and Bayun Obo. These are are called locally the rare earth capital of the world. And you you see, you notice two things. One, Bauto is uh, quickly transforming from a northern frontier town into a glistening metropolis like many cities in China. Um, but it is also heavily polluted, right? The soil and water surrounding the old industrial zone around the city um, have become so so polluted that, in fact, they'll no longer support agricultural production or to the extent that people still do grow food in the areas around the city, it is actually contaminated with pollution from the industry. Um, People who live immediately downstream of the mine itself have had to deal with the um, health impacts for a couple of generations. And uh, one of the, I think, most striking things that I noticed when I was there is that after a while, you can tell who grew up immediately downstream of the mine or the industrial facility by looking at them, right? Because they often have uh, skin lesions or what look like uh, bone deformities, which is in fact skeletal fluorosis. And this comes as a result not Um, from exposure to the rare earth elements themselves, but exposure to all the other things that are brought up with rare earth elements, like arsenic, fluoride, and other radioactive materials. Mm. Uh, So when people learn about this, uh, do they see that as, you know, an argument against clean energy? You know, sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think that there are a handful of uh, dare I say, bad faith arguments out there mm-hmm. that call this, you know, there's been headlines to the effect of, you know, that this is, quote unquote, green energy's dirty little secret. 
Um, but here's the thing. You know, we also use rare earth elements to build our fiber optic cables, to build suspension bridges, to, you know, uh, give glassware a lovely pink color, right? So we already had this environmental challenge of how we source our critical materials and whether we're sourcing them in a socially and environmentally sustainable way. Long before we even started talking about this critical transition to a new green economy. So I think the key thing to take away here is that we can use our green transition as an opportunity to address the supply, the supply chain issues, right? To make sure that our green technology is actually truly green, right? And, but if we don't look at our supply chain issues, if we don't make sure that, you know, the entire life cycle of renewable energy technology is in fact green and sustainable and socially and environmentally friendly, then we could be looking at a scenario where renewable energy deployment does exacerbate the problem. Dr. Julia Klinger is assistant professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies, uh, also co-director of BU's Land Use and Livelihoods Initiative, and author of Rare Earth Frontiers, From Subterranean Soils to Lunar Landscapes. We're learning more about uh, some of the technology uh, metals uh, that uh, many uh, products uh, rely on, including um, the metal that helps uh, with the magnets used in these large uh, turbines that are being developed for offshore wind. You can join our conversation if you have a question question about uh, rare earths and the number 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, so Julie, tell us more about um, when we think about uh, ways uh, to better acquire these rare earth elements, uh, something called flex mining. Can you talk th us through uh, some of the options that industry should be thinking about? Oh, absolutely. Um, so there are a number of ways to tackle this problem. And, you know, I'll just use, you know, the, the recent uh, policy changes in Connecticut, for example, right? So Connecticut just made this fabulous commitment to 2,000 megawatts of offshore wind. That's great, right? So um, assuming they use a fleet of wind turbines that actually uses rare earth elements, um, we're looking at, you know, something on the order of, you know, 400 and 500 tons, uh, metric tons of, of rare earth elements that'll need to be used in order to deploy these things. Now, that's both a lot and a little bit of the total global production, right? Total global production of rare earth elements really isn't more than 150,000 tons per year. Sounds like a lot, but if you compare it to things like iron, right, it's really just a drop in the bucket. Um, and so we could imagine, right, what a paradigm shift it would be if uh, say Connecticut were to require that raw materials uh, that go into the wind turbines were sourced from certified sustainable or net zero or otherwise certified facilities, right? Uh, there's ways to support manufacturers with tax incentives to do this. And one easier way to actually get uh, these rare earth elements in a more environmentally friendly way is through the practice of flex mining. So this means that one mining facility is used for multiple things. Now, often, if you open a silver mine or a lead mine or even a rare earth mine, you're bringing up all sorts of other good, potentially useful stuff. Um, you know, the, the actual element that you're after may only be two or three or four percent of the to total material that you're bringing up. And so we have all over the world, you know, all over, all over North America, these old or closed down mine sites um, and there's this lingering problem there of, you know, tailings ponds or mind waste or mine waste 
that could actually be um, a potentially immense resource of rare earth elements and other critical materials simply because these things were brought up and uh, they weren't used, right? Because the company was there mining for something else. So if we use flex mining, we're looking at a potentially really exciting paradigm shift where instead of digging new holes in the ground to get the critical elements we need in order to achieve widespread deployment of renewable energy technology, we would instead be killing two birds with one stone effectively um, because we would be reducing the overall waste footprint of our current and dormant mining facilities while also meeting our needs for these critical materials. All of this, of course, requires public support for the suppliers. It requires policy support, tax incentives for the manufacturers in order to make this happen. But considering the scale of the climate challenge we are facing, um, I don't think it's anything we can't do. What about um, possibilities for reuse and recycling, uh, Julie, for what's already being used in in tech production? Oh, that's an excellent question. So currently, Here's the thing. We throw away thousands of tons annually of critical materials, not just rare earth elements, but also critical technology metals, right? You know, every time we get rid of a laptop, every time we decommission an airplane, right? Every time we break a cell phone and and toss it away, every time we lose our our earbuds, (laughs) what we're doing is we're discarding critical technological materials. Um, Now, here's the thing. We already know what it takes to recycle our electronic waste, right? We already have the technological know-how. What we do not have is the social infrastructure in place in order to collect things as diverse as, you know, old laptops and, you know, uh, spent jet or old decommissioned jet airplane engines, right? Um, But to me, that's actually the easier part of the puzzle, right? We have the technological know-how figured out, All we have to do is put together a collection and recycling system, which actually, if you think about it, over the past 30 to 40 years, we've managed to do with a number of other things already in this country, you know, from bottle and can uh, to compost. You can join our conversation as we learn more about rare earth elements behind some of the technologies we use today. My guest, Julie Klinger, assistant professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies. Uh, Again, you can find Where We Live on Facebook and Twitter. Just search at Where We Live. Uh, Jordan's calling in from Bridgeport. Jordan, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm an engineer who works in the wind energy industry, uh, also a BU alum, as your guest is. Um, and my question is regarding the use of rare earth materials in conventional forms of electricity generation, such as uh, natural gas. I think, is it maybe unfair to say that only renewable energy needs these rare earth materials when, in fact, conventional sources such as natural gas, uh, which I think is scheduled to continue to displace coal power, um, going forward, uh, these conventional sources also need the the rare earth materials. So it's it's not only a renewable energy problem. Is that a fair assessment? Again, we did bring that up, Jordan, but I'll let my guest, uh, Julie, uh, expand on that. Yeah, fabulous. Um, I think that's so important to be absolutely clear about that um, that any form of energy generation that we're talking about, whether it's natural gas, whether it's uh, conventional 
other forms of conventional fossil fuels or whether it's renewable energy requires rare earth elements or other uh, critical technology metals. Um, so the thing that we need to be really clear about is that you know, the social and environmental challenges that come with getting the raw materials we need to generate the energy we need did not begin with renewable energy technology, right? Um, I will say, though, that we have to be um, a little bit maybe on the offensive against arguments that are presenting uh, green energy as somehow creating the problem. Uh, I, so I, I completely agree with you. Thank you for that comment. Uh, we've been focusing um, on some of the, the field research that you did earlier in China, Julie, but also in Latin America, there are places where communities are sitting atop uh, these rare earth uh, uh, materials. And, and the impact, is it the same there? Well, it's interesting. So the other place where I've spent um, a bit of time over the past several years is in the northwestern Brazilian Amazon. And uh, this is an area that is uh, majority indigenous. Uh, most of the land is protected either as conservation areas or as um, constitutionally demarcated uh, indigenous land. So what this means is you absolutely cannot engage in any sort of mining uh, in these territories. However, in the 70s, um, some fairly substantial deposits of niobium and rare earths were identified in the region and then forgot about for a long time. Um, and then in 2010, when the world sort of woke up initially to the importance of rare earth elements um, to everyday life, there was this renewed gold rush or interest, so to speak, in uh, quote-unquote liberating these resources from underneath the feet of indigenous people. Now, um, this is where practices like flex mining and recycling and requiring um, environmentally superior certifications from suppliers is really important. Um, because if we don't require that our rare earth elements and other critical materials such as niobium are sourced in a socially and environmentally sustainable way, what that does is that incentivizes right, um, small-scale, illegal, and clandestine, uh, medium-to-large-scale miners to go into these areas um, and uh, wreak all sorts of havoc because they're effectively um, operating outside of the oversight of the state or, or the military in order to meet increasing global demand, right? So um, it may seem like it's, like it's a complex picture with a lot of moving parts, but actually, um, it's actually pretty simple. You know, if we don't take care of um, sustainably and responsibly sourcing these things, that then pushes prospecting and production into socially and environmentally protected or vulnerable areas. And that can lead to deforestation? Absolutely, yes. And, and if, um, if we were to find ourselves um, in this scenario where all of a sudden we started sourcing rare earth elements from, um, from other parts of, of Latin America as opposed to from China, and we didn't look after the social and environmental conditions at the point of origin, we could find ourselves in this crazy situation where we're deploying renewable energy technology here in order to mitigate climate change, but in fact, we're exacerbating it by diminishing uh, the capacity of one of the largest carbon sinks on land, which is the Amazon rainforest, to, to effectively sequester uh, CO2. I mean, currently, uh, the Amazon basin is responsible for about 25% of carbon sequestration globally. And we really need 
every bit of that carbon sequestration if we have any hope of um, keeping temperature rise at a reasonable level. Mm. Uh, before we head into break, uh, Julie, uh, we, going back to China being um, a large uh, exporter and, and also working with production of rare earth elements there, how does this trade war between U.S. and China impact the industry? Well, I, I think that there's been an awful lot of smoke and not a whole lot of fire. Um, you know, people made an awful lot of Xi Jinping's visit to a rare earth magnet facility in China a couple weeks ago. Um, and, you know, the, the discourse has kind of run away with itself. Um, currently, the U.S. doesn't really import that much of uh, rare earth oxides. What we actually import are uh, the various technological components that contain rare earth oxides. So things like magnets, things like components for various technologies, um, and other things like that. So unless the Chinese government starts talking about restricting export to the U.S. of those sorts of technological components, um, I think that actually the concerns are a little overblown. And that happened before in 2011, and the countries were able uh, to work around that? Uh, yes. So in 2011, um, there were a couple of uh, shipments of rare earth oxides that were uh, held up, right? They were intended for Japan. Um, and the ships weren't really allowed to leave one particular port in eastern China. And nobody really knew this was happening until uh, Japanese customs inquired at uh, China's customs authority after the mis missing shipments. And but that's not the story that was told. The story that was told at the time was that China embargoed rare earth elements to Japan, which is something that one government does against another during a time of war. That's not at all what happened. But nevertheless, you know, uh, markets reacted accordingly and the prices for some rare earth elements like uh, neodymium and dysprosium increased by as much as 2000%. Right. And so that really shocked the world into the importance of, of these elements in everyday life, and particularly in renewable energy generation. Julia Klinger, again, is professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies, author of the book Rare Earth Frontiers from Subterranean Soils to Lunar Landscapes. Julie, we thank you for joining us today from Boston. All right. Thank you. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, gardens and fields are popping with color this time of year, but a new report warns New England is losing many species of wildflowers. We'll learn more after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, several times on the show, we've talked about the importance of native plants in your gardens. Now we know more about what's at stake with a new paper out on native wildflower loss in New England. The lead author joins me now by phone, Dr. Caitlin McDonough McKenzie, who's the David H. Smith conservation researcher at the University of Maine and lead author on this recent paper. Uh, Caitlin, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So tell us, um, you know, how did you start on this project and uh, how far back did you rely on uh, historical botanist records? Yeah, I started this project as a Ph.D. student at Boston University. And the timing was perfect because I arrived at Acadia National Park in 2011, right after this wonderful book, Plants of Acadia National Park, was published in 2010. And that was 
this beautiful catalog of every plant in Acadia National Park. And this area has been just incredibly um, exciting for botanists for many, many years. And in 1894, there was a flora from Mount Desert Island, which is where Acadia National Park is, uh, that was published as a result of 14 years of fieldwork um, that was started when the initial, the, the uh, first botanist was a uh, undergraduate in college. He was doing some summer exciting uh, natural history work on the island. And so when I arrived in Acadia National Park in 2011, I had the 1894 flora that cataloged every species on the island, and I had a 2010 flora that cataloged every species on the island. And my job was to go through and connect the dots. So it was a lot like trying to study a makeover where I had the before picture and I had the after picture, and I needed to quantify what had happened to each of these plant species. So the recent study finds one quarter of native New England wildflower species have been lost in the last 150 years. So when we're talking about uh, native species, uh, tell us uh, which ones are are most vulnerable. Sure. So we got that number, one quarter, um, by looking at 13 different places where we had that kind of makeover uh, data set, where we had the earlier flora and the current flora. And so we looked at these 13 sites across New England, and those the rate of species loss ranged from just under 4% in the Finger Lakes in New York to over 50% in Staten Island, but that average was 25%. Um, And we noticed that there are some plant families like orchids and lilies that are especially vulnerable. So for example, um, on Mount Desert Island, there were 21 species of orchids in 1894. Nine of those have now become locally extinct and another eight have declined in abundance. And similarly, In the lilies, there were seven species uh, that were recorded in 1894. Three of them are now lost from the island, and another four, um, they haven't declined in abundance, but they haven't increased in abundance either. Mm. And when we think about non-natives that are uh, crowding in, uh, which ones are are you and your other researchers seeing? Uh, So, for example, again, in in Mount Desert Island, we found things like purple loosestrife and Japanese knotweed, which were not present in in the flora in 1894, and those are, are now um, common species on Mount Desert Island. So when we think about um, some of the, the causes behind this, is it hard to pinpoint, or what are um, some of the things that you've learned, Caitlin? It is definitely hard to pinpoint. There's been a lot of change going on in the region um, over the last 100 years, from really small-scale things like local development, um, deer browsing, um, to bigger more regional issues like air pollution to global issues like climate change. And all of those are working together. So it was beyond the scope of our paper to point to any one individual plant and say, that was acid rain. Mm. And that one we Mm -hmm. lost because we built a parking lot. Um, But really pointing out this really broad picture where we have these 13 sites from across the region. Some of them are conservation land. Some of them are counties or towns. um, And across all these different types of habitats and types of of sites, we're seeing this general pattern of species loss and decline. And that points to a broader uh, set of causes. It's not just something local that's happening in each of these 13 sites individually. Uh, Caitlin, uh, tell our listeners what's at stake when we hear about, you know, one quarter of these native plants uh, disappearing in such a widespread area and how that impacts our, our local ecosystems. Absolutely. Plants are not just the green backdrop uh, or the habitat for our charismatic wildlife. Um, They provide a lot of ecosystem services for us. 
And people have uh, very intense relationships with plants, even if you don't think that you do uh, at first blush. Um, so another project that I'm working on, Plant Love Stories, collects the stories of people's interactions with plants. And so we have everything from people's gardens to the plants that their grandmothers had in their, in their gardens growing up, uh, favorite foods, plants that inspired research, maple syrup. Um, and through this collection of different plant love stories, we've seen that humans have really special plants in our lives. And so losing this biodiversity is losing opportunities for more of these plant love stories to come alive. Uh, you mentioned the plants that people have an affinity for, such as? Uh, for example, I really love alpine plants. I love working above tree lines. So um, I'm uh, a, a big fan of things like uh, diapensia and uh, Labrador tea. I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> uh, Caitlin, uh, when we were talking about earlier about some of the historical records that you were going through, was it difficult um, when we think about uh, the time that these botanists were, were um, recording, uh, that the data that you were able to look at were primarily from uh, uh, men and you know, the fact that botanists uh, uh, were many different uh, types of people and how you can uh, you know try to glean as much information from these certain pockets Buckets, uh, if you will. Sure. So I worked with this, this flora from 1894, and it was started and published by a uh, Harvard undergraduate, um, Edward Rand. But he made a point of reaching out to other botanists and kind of collecting this group of collaborators around him, including women like Annie Sawyer Downs, who was a, a pretty well-known botanist in the area, um, although she didn't become a co-author on his project. And it's around the same time in, at the end of the 19th century that science is professionalizing. And so part of the professionalization was it became a, a men's only um, kind of club. And so uh, we have this really great data set from the botanists who were working and had recognition within the community and their, their works were archived and their herbarium specimens were kept at uh, universities and we know that at the same time, many other people were looking at plants. They just didn't happen to be wealthy white men. And so their records didn't survive or their records were not kept in a way that was recognized by science. And so we're really only looking at just the smallest snapshot of historical data that's available. Um, and I wanted to keep in mind that people like Annie Sawyer Downs were there doing the work alongside of them, but they didn't always make it into the record books. Uh, before we go, if our listeners want to learn more about this recent study, where can they go, Caitlin? We published this in Rodora. It's the Journal of the New England Botanical Club, which was actually founded by Edward Rand, one of those, those early botanists. Um, and there's also plantlovestories.com, which collects the plant love stories of people uh, in the uh, working, living, and interacting with plants today. Well, we appreciate uh, your time with us here on Where We Live. Again, Dr. Caitlin McDonough-McKenzie, who's the David H. Smith conservation researcher at the University of Maine. She's the lead author on this recent paper about native wildflower loss in New England. And, and we'll try to also link to some of our past shows where we focused on the importance of native plants uh, in your backyard. But Caitlin, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. 
Thank you so much. Uh, today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And special thanks to our new crop of interns. You can also go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. And this programming note, guess what? I'm hosting the wheelhouse tomorrow while both John Dankosky and Colin McEnroe get a jump start on their summer tans. Hope you'll join me tomorrow as we talk to a wicked smart panel about the latest news, including UTC's plans to move its headquarters to Boston. Again, you can join the wheelhouse tomorrow at 9 here on WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio. As always, thanks for listening.